0: Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Torah study. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis 28, our Torah portion this week is Shabbat uh, Vayetz. And it's going to continue the story of Jacob. And in the previous portion, there was a conflict that emerged between Jacob and Esau, his, his older brother, and which that Jacob received the birthright blessing from uh, his father Isaac. And uh, Esau was very upset about this, threatening to kill uh, Jacob because of it. And so Jacob is urged by his family to flee back to the area where Rebekah had come from, back to her brother Laban and those that are in the family in that way. So now we're going to have Jacob who's on this journey and what will be happening with him when he runs into Laban. So join with me now in Genesis 28 And in verse 10, it begins with, Then Jacob departed from Beersheba, went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place, and he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you... And in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now before we go any further, this is uh, the famous story of Jacob's ladder. And he goes to this certain place, as the scripture says in verse 11, and there's a little bit of speculation as to exactly what is this place that's being referred to. Some have said that it was Mount Moriah. It was where the Temple Mount was and where the Temple would later be built, while others have said, no, that it's probably the area slightly to the north, a community area called Bethel. And both of them have compelling arguments for it. Bethel actually means the house of God, and you'll hear Jacob make some sort of statement to that effect. Surely this is the house of God. And the, the naming of that land is based on this story. naming of that city is based on this story. And, but yet, at the same time, we also know the Temple Mount is central you know, in God's dealings with all of mankind. Now, there's some intriguing things in this passage, and I want to point out a couple of them because they tie directly into the Messiah. Um, the first thing we have is he sees this ladder... And he sees angels of God ascending and descending upon it. This is verse 12. We, that's not the only time we're going to hear about such a thing. In fact, in John chapter 1 and in verse 51, when Yeshua first meets Nathaniel, you know, the fellow who was under the fig tree, and he's being introduced to Yeshua for the first time, um, and he makes a statement to Nathaniel. he says, um, here's a righteous man uh, that is coming forth, and Nathaniel says, well, how do you know me? And he says, well, I, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And whatever whatever Nathaniel had been doing with the Lord under that fig tree, certainly he had an epiphany moment, and he made this incredible declaration in front of the other disciples that Yeshua was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he was the King of Israel, a very bold declaration to that effect. At which point Yeshua said, just because I said, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? He says, I tell you, you will soon see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so Yeshua associates the latter in Jacob's dream with himself. Now that's a very interesting thought. So let's go back to Jacob's dream and look at that if, if the Messiah is saying he's the ladder that the angels ascend and descend on. The ladder is what takes you from one elevation to another elevation, and the Messiah certainly is the intermediary between God in heaven and to us here on the earth. So in effect, he's like a ladder, But let's look at it even closer, Um, where it says in verse 13, the very next verse, it says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Literally, that's not what it says. Literally, it says this, and behold, the Lord stood beside him. And gives the attribution that it's a person, not above it, the ladder, but beside him, the ladder. That the Lord was standing with the Son of Man, and the angels were ascending and descending. And this is a very, very powerful uh, picture now, suddenly, where we have um, the Messiah as being Jacob's ladder. And he's expressing that in a testimony to his disciples early on in his ministry. If, in fact, that's exactly what was going on, and I believe it was, then Jacob was getting his first interface with dealing with the Messiah right there. And he was he's being reiterated to him, I'm the God of your father uh, Abraham and Isaac, and the very promises that God had given to Abraham and to Isaac, also extended to him, and that in him, through him, would all the families of the earth be blessed. And that's the reason why when we speak of God, we speak of him as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, because it's through that line that this blessing and this promise comes to the descendants and to um, all of the world, all the families of the world. And so when we speak of um, Abraham, he's only the, the first of three fathers that is an expression of our relationship with God. Verse. Uh, let me take you to verse uh, 15, and behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And he promised that he would get to live in the land and he would have descendants. So at the moment, Jacob has no descendants. He doesn't have a wife or anybody. But he's saying to Jacob, you're going to go. I will bring you back. And when I bring you back, you're going to have descendants who will dwell on this land uh, for it. And he says, I will be with you regardless of what happens. Now, we want to remember what the Lord says here because Jacob... Later on, at at the end of the story with Laban, he's going to be reminding the Lord of that and saying, Lord, remember, you promised me you'd be with me and you'd bring me back. And there will come a day when Jacob will be returning. It'll be a little consternation associated with it. And he's going to remember this promise that God made to him. Let me reiterate again. Believing in the promises of God is what we call faith believing in the promises of god is what is our righteousness we're doing the right thing when we trust and believe in the promises of god and just like abraham uh, faith is counted for righteousness we see the example here of jacob's doing the same thing he's counted for righteousness because he's believing the promises of god and the same thing applies to us as spiritual descendants we believe the promises of God, and that is where our righteousness comes from. Our righteousness does not come from deeds or from obedience. Our righteousness comes from faith, and that faith is based on believing the promises of God. Now, I believe, uh, and part of you know the promise that I've accepted and believe in, that my heavenly Father sent His Son to come to the earth so that when I trusted in Him I'd receive forgiveness of sins and that He would be my redemption. I believe that promise and I accept that promise and that promise is now part of my life and that is the righteousness that I have concerning my life, not because I'm a wonderful guy and not because I obey a few commandments, it's rather because of whom I put my trust in and as a result I have a relationship with Him And that is what's counted. It's the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of men. And that's certainly the case that we have of Jacob here in this testimony. Verse 18, so Jacob rose up early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. So... I believe it was at Bethel, not at Mount Moriah, as is suggested by a lot of Jewish commentators. And Bethel is a community that is north of Jerusalem by a short distance. And oh, by the way, one of the interesting things about that city, if you ever get a chance to go there, there are pieces of limestone, uh, what we call Jerusalem limestone, laying all around on the ground. And the stone there is very interesting because when you pick it up, It feels soft. In fact, you barely have to rub it and it's not a real hard stone, it will, it's a very soft stone, and as you rub it and it becomes smooth, why, it feels smooth to the touch. In fact, I have a piece that I have in my office uh, of it because I was absolutely amazed at how this stone felt. Well, apparently that stone is the type of stone that Jacob said, hey, this is soft, I can make a pillow out of this to put my head on to sleep. And I, once you see this stone and once you feel what it is, that's not a hard stretch for you to understand why Jacob might have been tempted to use a stone for it. I should also tell you one other thing about that stone that comes down through history and through the legend. There are people... In Great Britain, that right now believe they have that stone, that they have the stone that Jacob used to make a pillow with. And that stone is sitting in the throne chair underneath the seat of the kings of uh, Great Britain. And when somebody becomes the, the king or queen of Great Britain, they sit on a throne chair. And it is understood that that's Jacob's stone that he used for the pillow uh, sitting there. And so that's a case of how this story has come forth even into the modern day uh, for it. And that is what part of what uh, Great Britain uses that when a king or queen, they have the authority to become that by divine right, that just as God made this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God can by divine right decide who's going to be the king. And rather than laying on the stone, they sit on the stone um, as a part of that for the throne chair. All right, verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's household in safety, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and of all that thou dost give me, I will surely give a tenth to thee. The, um, Jacob is responding to what the Lord has said to him. And by the way, the same thing is true of us. When we believe the promises of God, we too make a declaration. We make a confession of faith, and we announce that the Lord is going to be our God, and oh, by the way, that we're going to give to that God, we're going to be a part of his household. And we do the same thing throughout the, 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 our lives in walking in the faith. There's been times when I said, Lord, I'm trusting you for adequate food, for a place to live. I'm trusting you for the necessary resources I need in my life. And here's Jacob doing the same thing that all of us do. And so those are examples of how Jacob was setting up his personal covenant, but this is a covenant that's with Abraham and Isaac as well, this very powerful covenant. So when we do the same thing, guess what we're testifying to? That we too are under that same covenant. And by the way, brethren, I know we have the new covenant and so forth, but the new covenant did not negate that covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to us. That covenant belongs to us every bit as much as the new covenant belongs to us. All right, moving now to chapter 29. <clears throat> then Jacob went on his journey, came to the land of the sons of the east, and he looked and saw a well in the field. Behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place at the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, "'My brothers, uh, where are you from?' And they said, "'We are from Haran.' And he said, "'Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor?' And they said, "'We know him.' And he said to them, "'Is it well with him?' And they said, "'It is well.' And behold, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. So he arrives, and he's discovered that he's come to the place that was his objective that he wanted to come to. So why did he stop there with the sheep? Because Jacob, see, had been dwelling in tents and taking care of sheep back with his mother and father, so he knew a little something about it. And he makes note of they had come for the watering and there was a stone on this well. The, um, verse 6, he answers that it's well with him. Let me also just say that custom of when you go to um, meet with someone, it is a Hebrew custom that you ask about the other person's family. One of the things that I have always done, and it's a little surprising uh, to them when I do it, Anytime I go to see a doctor, you know, I have a doctor's visit, I go in, and we'll greet, and one of the first things they'll ask me is, how are you doing, how are you feeling? And I will answer them, and then before it's over and done with, I will ask them, how is it with them, and how is their family? And a lot of the doctors and nurses are a little surprised that I ask the family, and I explain to them. I said, look, I've been taught that you're not supposed to be self-centered even when you go see the doctor. Be interested in other people and what's going on in their lives as much as you are in your own. And I said, so if you don't mind, I'm not trying to pry. I just wanted to know if you're well as well. And they always respond in a very positive way. It's a very hospitable way to greet people. And we have it exhibited for us here as Jacob comes into the city of Haran right off the bat. Um, Verse 7, and he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And they rolled the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Apparently, this stone that was over the top of this well was of sufficient size that the people who came out to water the sheep, you had to wait for everybody to appear because apparently it was a very uh, strenuous effort on the part of all the shepherds to move that stone. And, and they had to wait on one another to bring their flocks so that they could be watered. And so he's like asking, How come they're not watered already? Why, you know, it's the high part of the day, they should be out in the pasture eating. Why are they still here waiting for water? Give them water. Get them out there in the pasture. He understands something about the logic of caring for a flock. And it goes on to say, uh, we cannot do it until all all of the livestock are gathered. Uh, While he was still speaking with him, verse 9, Rachel came with his father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came about that when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, And the sheep of Laban he had uh, from the mouth that, uh, from the mother's brother, that Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, um, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Now, before we go any further, there's a lot happened there. So let's talk about that for a moment. As I said to you before, um, the other shepherds would wait before they could move the stone. And I think it had something to do with their inability to move the stone. Now, Jacob comes up and he moves the stone. Um, I think one of the things that Jacob did was I think that he knew something about how to lever a heavy stone. And I think he probably levered the stone and got it to work itself off to the top of the well, which is something that maybe they didn't have the skill of doing or they didn't have the strength to do. But in any case, Jacob accelerates the process of being able to do it, and then he assists in the watering. Rachel comes with her sheep. Now, watering the sheep is not something that happens quickly. They have to draw forth the jars, they have to put them in the troughs, the sheep have to come up, they have to drink. So they were there for a while, and there's a good possibility they may have been there for as much as two hours, you know, to accomplish that with all the sheep that were being watered. In the course of those two hours, I think Rachel and Jacob had a long conversation. And I think that in the course of that conversation, he felt it was his destiny to be married to her. He fell in love with her, she did with him, and it was like love at first sight. Well, not only love at first sight, I think it was love at the first conversation. And I have a theory, and I have counseled with many couples getting ready to be married. I have always asked this question, and I've always gotten a very similar answer. When a, a couple comes in, and I ask them, what was the what was the moment that you said, whoa, wait a minute, I, I think it's I think I should be married to this person or you started thinking in those kind of long terms toward the other person. What what were you doing just before that happened? And the answer is always the same, that they were talking to each other about their lives, that um, she had told the story of her life, he had told the story of his life. He, upon listening to her story, said, hey, you know, I could see how I could fit into the story of her life, and she did the same with him. I could fit into the story of his life, and it's like they don't really say that, but it's like it pops and both of them understand it at the same moment. That epiphany moment is sometimes when people refer to, I met my soulmate" or I fell in love at first sight, or whatever you want to call it, and I think that's what takes place here. I think Jacob and Rachel, it only took them a short period of time, and they knew they were supposed to be married. And he hauls off and kisses her. Now, that was his huge mistake. That means he's done sold out for her. He's going to do whatever it costs to have her. And by the way, he is going to pay a high price uh, for this. If he'd not kissed her, he could have maybe negotiated a little bit. But when he kissed her, It was all over but the shouting. So here we go on with the rest of the story. He's now kissed her, and she's run back to say that uh, Jacob had had arrived. Verse 13, So it came about when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Now, i got to tell you what was probably in Laban's mind. Uh, back earlier when Eliezer went looking for Rebekah, he was the servant of Abraham, and he had treasure. He, had, uh, he gave uh, gold uh, to Rebekah, and Laban was attracted to the fact that he was wealthy. And so he's probably assuming, Laban is probably assuming of Jacob, well, here comes this you know grandson of Abraham, and he probably has the inheritance from Abraham, it's been passed down, and so he must be a rich fellow, so I definitely wanna run out and see him because Laban had the same interest toward Eliezer. So we're starting to detect the first evidence of Laban's agenda and his motivations, and this is gonna become very apparent um, here that he has ulterior motives and he's not gonna be, he's not gonna do things in good faith uh, toward Jacob. Um, Verse 14, And Laban said to him, Surely you you are my bone, my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And apparently he'd already helped out with the sheep at this point. He had his skill, and he'd been helping. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Rachel was a knockout, and Jacob was, had been persuaded by her. Verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel so that he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. So that little statement right there, boy, I think all of us can realize that when you're having a wonderful time, it seems like time flies when you're having a good thing. And that's what happens with him this seven years. He's having a wonderful time. He has every expectation he's going to be married to Rachel. He gets to see her on a regular basis and so forth, and he's going to receive her. Verse twenty-one. Then Jacob said to Laban, "Give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go in to her." And Laban gathered all the men of the place, made a feast. Now it came about in the evening, when he took his daughter, when he took his daughter Leah, and brought her to him, and Jacob went in to her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. And so it came about in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? Um, I have actually heard various teachers say, well, Jacob is getting his due punishment because he deceived uh, Isaac, his father, and deceived um, Esau. Therefore, it's being done to him. And there's some sort of poetic justice in that. I disagree with that completely. I believe that what happened here was the malfeasance of Laban himself had nothing to do with the righteous things that had taken place. Again, as I've shared with you before, God himself said that the older would serve the younger, meaning that Esau would be less than Jacob, that Jacob would be given the birthright blessing and the higher esteem. And if you're going to go around saying, well, Jacob was a deceiver, a supplanter, and so forth, and you're going to claim this argument that he was getting his comeuppance, let me just tell you that it is God who does the judging, not men. And if God said this is the way it's going to be, I don't care if you agree with it or not, that's the way it's going to be. And oh, by the way, do not charge God with any form of unrighteousness. That would be a huge mistake. You do not judge God and you do not charge him with any unrighteousness whatsoever. Uh, It is his decision and his alone. This earth belongs to him. The fullness of the earth belongs to him. And so anyways, Jacob is deceived by this process. Now, you've got to ask yourself, how in the world did that take place? Well, part of it has to do that in those days, in the custom, was that when the wife went in to the husband, that she would cover herself. If you remember, Rebecca put a veil on, uh, when it went to see Isaac the first time, uh, the wife is, presents herself modestly uh, to her husband, and then the husband takes her. And it usually was it's usually in the dark. Um, You know, I don't know if they had any candles lit or not, but oh, by the way, there'd been one heck of a party the night before with all these men, and you can be assured that there probably was some wine drinking that took place, and so he probably was feeling pretty good when he finally went in to be with his wife, believing it's Rachel, when in truth of fact it's Leah, uh, in veiled and concealed to him. He wakes up in the morning and suddenly realizes what has happened, what has been done to him. There is a great Torah principle that comes out for every young man that they should hear at this. And it says, do not drink excessively at your wedding. You could end up married to the wrong woman. And, you know, if you're drinking too much, you're losing your faculties to make good judgments. And when it comes to um, marrying a woman... You need all of your faculties to be on their very best uh, for you to um, enter into that covenant with your wife. All right, so he's now married to uh, Leah, which is the older one. Verse 26, but Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete this week of this one, and you, we will give you the other also for service, which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Um, and Jacob did so and completed her week and gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Essentially what happened, it was this. Um, Laban says, look, you can bring Rachel in as well. You can marry her, but you're married to Leah, but you can marry Rachel as well. Work for another seven years and to complete the transaction." And so Jacob agreed to this. I think part of the reason why he agreed to it was he didn't really have a lot of choices in this. He wanted to be married to Rachel and this was a way to be married to Rachel. Now you have Leah who is not the desire of Jacob. Rachel clearly is the desire of Jacob. And this is going to set up kind of a conflict between the sisters over the attentions and the affections of Jacob as husband. And uh, Verse twenty nine, and Laban also gave his hand, his his maid Bilhah, to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went in to into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Re, uh, Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, and, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and named him Reuben. For she said, Behold, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. Actually, Reuben means see a son, is actually what it is. See, I I have a son. And Leah's thinking, because I provided him a son, he he will begin to love me. He will care for me because she felt unloved and that he obviously had gone into her simply to do the husbandly duty of which the wife is entitled to conjugal rights. Uh, As well as the man is and so he had performed his duty. She got pregnant. She has a son now. This is the start of how these um, Two wives are going to proceed to have children and they're in this kind of competition to try to produce as many children many offspring for Jacob as they can And there even going to come a moment when they're even going to get desperate and they're going to turn their handmaids over to Jacob to have children through them. And that's how we're going to have the 12 sons of Jacob that will come forth, Reuben being the first one. Now it goes on to tell us that, verse 33, that Leah conceived again and bore a son, and because the Lord has heard that I'm unloved, He has therefore given me this son also, so she named him Simeon, which means I'm not loved. Um, She conceived again and bore a son, and now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons, therefore she named him Levi. And she conceived again, bore a son, and this time I will praise the Lord And therefore his name was Judah. Then she stopped bearing. So Leah has four sons right off the bat. By the way, Levi means attached to. In other words, I'm connected to because of love. Because, you know, love, you know, connects you. And because I'm attached, I'm loved. And then Judah, she was just praising the Lord. You know, the Lord has been gracious to me, has granted me four sons. In the meantime, Rachel's had none. Now, it's not because Jacob and Rachel have not been trying, but the Lord saw fit that Leah should bear sons. Now, one of the conclusions that we have to come to is, as I shared with you before, about God makes these decisions. You know, God made the decision that uh, Jacob is going to be the one who gets the birthright, not Esau. Well, now he's making another decision. I don't care if you do love Rachel and consider, I want you married to Leah. And the sons that come forth is a vindication of Leah and is evidence about how God, it was God's plan that Jacob be married to Leah for sure. Uh, And it continues on with the rest of the story about the other children. We'll read through it here very quickly. Leah will end up with seven children. Rachel will end up with two. And then each of the handmaids will have two children. So that that's the total that comes up for all of the descendants of Jacob. There's only one daughter. The rest are sons uh, that come forth from it. Now, the reason why the Scripture talks about the meaning of the names is because each person who received a name it had to do with something very powerfully that was happening in their life at that point, and it was part of their destiny with the Lord, and they're really making an expression of, of what the Lord was doing with them and the benefit they were getting from the Lord. And oh, by the way, your name, your personal name, is part of your destiny, whether you realize it or not. Um, a destiny is not determined by the person themselves. A destiny is determined by someone for you. We have a destiny from the Lord. The Lord chooses certain things for us. And we believe God has a plan for our lives, who we're going to be married to, experiences we're going to go through. Our our whole goal is to begin to understand that destiny, work in concert with that destiny, and fulfill that destiny. And the first thing you get in destiny is you get a name given to you. My name is uh, Monty Judah. Did I pick that name? No. In fact, my first name was given by my father. And my last name is given by my father. Um, wives can also give names to children. But in the case, it, it's still someone else, not the child, not the descendant, who determines it. Someone else does it, usually a parent or the Lord. The By the way, this is a very um, ancient tradition um, that is all around the world where people will be given, children will be given names by others, and that suddenly becomes their their legal name and how they're recognized, not because they chose it, but because someone else chose it for them. Let's go into chapter 30 now. We're going to see further births of the children of Jacob. Uh, Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And she said, Here is my maid Bilhah, go into her, and that she may bear uh, bear on my knee, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him, her maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore he named, she named him Dan. Dan actually means judged. He has judged in favor of me, The meaning of the name. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I've indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. And Naphtali means prevailed. And when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah, gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore a son. And then Leah said, how fortunate, so she named him Gad. And that's exactly what Gad means, fortunate. It continues on. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, how happy am I, for women will call me happy, so they called him Asher. And Asher means happy. Now, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went in and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, "'Please give me some of your son's mandrakes.' But she said to her, "'It is a small matter for you to take my husband, "'and would you take my son's mandrakes also?' So Rachel said, "'Therefore he may lie with you tonight "'in return for your son's mandrakes.'" Now, just step back for a moment and listen to this. This is almost bordering on ridiculous. Uh, this competition between Leah and Rachel. And Rachel wants to have uh, some mandrakes that Reuben brought in. And so she trades, you know, her turn with Jacob in her tent, trades that to Leah in exchange so that she could have some of those mandrakes. So here comes Rachel in from the end of the day. Verse 16, And when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Uh, Then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. This is the classic definition that Jacob at this time is bought and sold. I mean, he is not in charge of this. This is the women in his life are ruling the nest. And so, by the way, most husbands will learn this that the wife has a lot of say about what goes on in the tent and a lot of say about what goes on to the nest and the house. And if he'll have to find a way to get through this just like Jacob did. Now, I'm not telling you it's the greatest thing in the world, but it works. And it worked for Jacob in this case. And most men resign themselves to the fact, let's just keep the wife happy and we'll be okay. So those are the famous magic words of every successful marriage. The words where the the man says, yes, dear, and uh, agrees with whatever the wife is saying. And here you have a biblical example of it. And it goes on to say now, and God gave heed to Leah. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. She named him Issachar. And Leah conceived again, bore a sixth son to Jacob. Uh, And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him now six sons. So she named him Zebulun. And afterwards she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. Now Leah has got seven children. Bilhah has two, Zilpah has two, Rachel has none. And at this point, then it says, God remembered Rachel. And God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Finally, she has a son. And she named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son, which actually, Joseph actually means um, give to me. All that you can give me. Give me the abundance. Give it to me as much as you possibly can. Now it came about when Rachel had borne Joseph to Jacob, um, said to Laban, Send me away that I might go to my own place and my own country, and give me my wives and my children, for I have served you, and let me depart from you yourself. Know your servant which I have rendered to you. But Laban said, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. And he said, he continued, Name me your wages, and I will give it. And he said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. And for you have had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And so he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall, give me, you shall not give me anything. Uh, if you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. He wants to earn it. He does not want to have anybody else credited with that. By the way, that was reminiscent of Abraham telling the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, don't give me any spoil. I don't get it from you. Uh, when he was successful in defeating their enemies. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall, shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me Will be considered stolen. And Laban said, Good, let it be according to your word. So he removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, everyone with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and, and uh, say, Give them to, into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks." Now it's fascinating, Jacob is still responsible for Laban's flock, but he also now has his own flock and he's taken care of them. Um, there's a couple of observations we need to make at this point. Um, within the goats and within sheep, um, a colored uh, animal, you know, a a spotted, a black one, is rare, and in fact, If you ever go out into a field where there's a large flock uh, and you want to get a rough estimate of how many sheep are out there, what you do is you count the number of black sheep because normally only 3% of the flock will be black sheep. So if I see three black sheep, that means there's about 100 sheep there total. And a similar thing can be done with the goats. So he's only asking for a very small percentage of Laban's flock. However, he knows a little something about these animals and how they breed and about how that once you have a male that is black and a male that is speckled or spotted, that he has a tendency to produce more outcome that will follow with that. So he's going to gather the males of that type so that they can then be bred with some of Laban's sheep and that he can produce his flock and he will keep them there together. And in fact, there's this very elaborate procedure here at the end of chapter 30 about exactly how he did the animal husbandry work to accomplish this. And it's a fascinating piece of scripture being near these poplar trees and how he would strip the poplar tree and then he would have the animals mate. And it would confuse the uh, sheep and they would allow the speckled ones and the spotted ones to mate with them because they would confuse them with the black and the white and the striped look of the poplar trees where they would be at. So the sheep wouldn't resist uh, the mating of these males that's as best as we understand that situation. But I want to talk to a for a moment to a a global theme that we see spiritually within our congregations that is based on this. As many of you know and have already been when you came out of the church and you came into the messianic movement most of you came in because you were dissatisfied with what was happening in the church. You didn't. You suddenly were confronted with the teaching of the Torah, the teaching of, of the commandments, and you felt that what the church was doing was not correct. And so you made a very conscious choice to come over to investigate uh, the teaching of the Torah, the commandments, and to follow this lifestyle of keeping the commandments. You also adopted the you know the different types of foods that you now eat and preferring the kosher over the unclean that you began to keep different holidays and as opposed to the ones you used to keep before. you've all made this transition but at the same time um, if you'll stop and look around for a moment, um, a lot of the brethren that come in the messianic movement and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here you definitely qualify as black sheep, uh, spotted and spreckled goats. Um, You're almost rejects of the church. You're rejects of a larger assembly. And you've come into these smaller assemblies of messianics. And amongst us messianics, we look around and, you know, we've all got different kinds of spots and spreckles about us and different backgrounds, and we're dragging in all this different baggage that comes in from whatever our spiritual experience has been. And of course, if you're an American believer, why well, you've been part of either Catholic or Lutheran church, you've been a Methodist at one time, Pentecostal, another Baptist, um, and you probably checked out some of the other uh, independent churches before you ever came to the Messianic movement. So, I mean, you are multi-laced and carrying all different kinds of manners of teachings and so forth about you when you come into the Messianic movement. Rarely do we see a person who was, let's say, a mainstream all of their life Baptist who suddenly becomes a Messianic or a mainstream all of their life Catholic that comes in. They do happen, but rarely. Mostly the people who come, they've bounced around into multiple places, never quite found the right place for them to fit, and now they've made their way into the Messianic movement, and so here we are. The other is... That sometimes we get a little frustrated with each other as messianics. um, We don't quite treat each other very nicely. Um, We have some goats that run around like to butt other people and we have some sheep that will fold and roll over and act dead and uh, so forth. Um, My point being is this, there is a reason why God refers to us his flock and is because a lot of times, the way we make decisions is like, like sheep. And um, it speaks to our humility you know, before the Lord. He's the good shepherd, we're the sheep of the flock, of his flock. And we talk about leadership in terms of being shepherded as opposed to being ruled over um, from it. And, we, and God uses all of those examples throughout the Scripture. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that if we are part of Jacob's flock, which is the flock of the Lord, then we're not, we don't all look lily-white. We're not all white, perfect-looking sheep. We have variations about us and differences about us and so forth. But the Lord has brought us together so that... We don't all look alike. We all believe in the same God. That is what is our unity. Our unity is in our relationship with God. It is not in that we appear the same way or look the same way. So one of the things that uh, messianics are famous at, some wear Talits and some don't. Some wear kippah, some don't. Uh, some dress up, some don't. You know, we all look different. We're all coming, and, and, and yet we are assembling as the flock uh, to the Lord. This is going to be of, um, you're going to find this theme throughout the rest of the Bible uh, tying into um, what will God will be doing with us uh, throughout that time frame. Now this portion continues on quite a bit. Um, and um, and I don't have the time to cover all that's in this portion, but let me, let me conclude by taking you back to God's selection of Leah to be the wife of Jacob and her seven children that she had. It is my belief that it was God's plan that Jacob be married to Leah, although he loved Rachel uh, dearly. If you look at the names of um, her children, They tell a story in the sequence. They tell a story about the Messiah. Dinah, the last, um, was the feminine gender, which qualifies as a bride. You know, the feminine gender is the bride. It turns out that we have this little quip saying about the children of Leah, it goes like this, based on the names of Leah's children. The Messiah came as God's son, Reuben, Zia's son. He was hated by some, Simeon, and loved by others, Levi. We should praise him because he's paid the wages for sin. Praise is Judah, Uh, wages is um, Issachar. Soon he will come to dwell Zebulun, with us, and we will be his bride. So let me say the phrase again. The Messiah came as God's son. He was hated by some, loved by others. We should praise him because he paid the wages for sin. Soon he will come to dwell with us, and we will be his bride. In the naming of Leah's children, it tells the great story of the Messiah coming to us and choosing us to be part of the house of God. And Leah's children will go on to very, very important positions, not the least of which is under Judah, the fourth son, who will become the de facto leader of all of Israel. So, brethren, that's our teaching for this week. Maybe I can catch up in the weeks following some of the other elements in this portion. Genesis is just loaded with so much to teach about. And these portions, you know, I could go for weeks on some of these portions. But that's our teaching for this Shabbat. Shabbat shalom to all of you, and we'll see you again next Sabbath for another teaching in the weekly Torah portion. Amen.